0: Jesus wins. The earth is shuddering under the stress of climate change, natural disasters, disease and death. But Jesus wins. Nations are locked in unending conflicts, inflicting massive collateral damage, all for the sake of gaining power. But Jesus wins. Political parties seem to just constantly rail at each other, all too often without any real care for the people they represent. The left and the right splitting further apart. It's chaos, frustrating, hair-pulling, too often unbelievable. Jesus wins. Injustice is everywhere. Sex slaves in Europe, sweatshops in Asia, black Americans in the United States. Indigenous peoples in our own country, Christians in China and the Middle East, Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, rape, murder, corruption, but Jesus wins. We are all dying. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Not exercise, diet, Botox, facelifts, hair dye, creams, medicine, technology, but Jesus wins. Jesus will win. Jesus has won. He will win all of it. Everything in the book of Revelation has been moving towards this, towards Jesus and his final victory over sin, Satan, evil, and even death itself. Revelation has taken us to the heights of heaven's glory and to the depths of earth's darkness. It's been a behind-the-scenes tour of history, revealing the spiritual battle that rages behind the conflict and chaos that we see. And we've seen the toll of that battle and the effect it's had on the lives of those who call this earth home. Revelation tells us that this turmoil will only escalate and intensify until eventually the power of the dragon, That Satan, the devil, and the beasts, that's the corrupt human powers, becomes so pervasive and destructive that God will say enough. Finally, we draw close to the end of history, the end of Revelation. Chapter 19 is the beginning of that end. And I'm hoping we'll go away today understanding two things better the nature of Jesus' final victory and the impact of that victory on our present lives. So the nature and the impact. Let's start with uh, the victory itself, the second coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is Jesus, who was introduced to us at the beginning of Revelation as the faithful and true witness. The one who came to earth in the first place to testify to God's intention to bring salvation to a dying world through the death of his own son. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus promised to come again. Still faithful, still true, but not this second time as a witness. No, this time as a judge. Echoing John's Gospel, uh, the author here describes Jesus as the Word of God, a divine human messenger who perfectly images who God is in his holy perfection. Jesus is the only one who is truly worthy of judging the world because he and he alone can hold up human thought and action to the light of God's holiness because he knows perfectly both God and humanity. He is like someone who holds up a piece of glass to the light just to see where the smudges and where the dirt is. In this way, Jesus holds up the world to the light of God, and in that way all secrets are revealed. Nothing that is hidden stays hidden. But Jesus is not just the judge of the world. No, he's also pictured here as the avenging warrior. He rides forth on a battle horse to wage war against all that offends God's holiness. On that final day, Jesus will have one mission and one mission only. To fight and win against all that is sinful, all that is evil, all that is unjust. To rid the world he created from even the hint of darkness. Did we think that the evil powers would go willingly? Would they surrender and fly the white flag? If we would, then we would underestimate just how opposed to God they are. In uh, chapter 19, 19, 1921, and 20, verse 7 to 10, in these two scenes, we we, uh, depict the last battle, the same battle, but from different perspectives. In 19, it's the beasts representing corrupt human power who go out to fight against King Jesus. Then chapter 20, it's the dragon himself, the devil, Satan, who rallies for one last assault against God, against Jesus, and against his people, Jesus' people. Uh, now, what's going on? Well, you might have noticed and got, maybe got a bit sidetracked by the fact that Satan is bound for a thousand years at the beginning of chapter 20. Well, we know from earlier that when Jesus rose from the dead, Satan lost his authority. He, his power was limited, his days numbered, but like a caged and wounded animal, he still exerts violent influence over the world. And in his last moment, moments, he will become all the more enraged. And yet in both cases, despite the, the, the dragon and the beasts and those who have allegiance with them rising up against King Jesus, the, the battle is unambiguous in its result. In 19, the beast and their human pawns are captured and thrown into a fiery lake. And in 20, Satan the dragon is brought to his final end and thrown into the same eternal fire. These images aren't pretty. In fact, they're pretty terrifying. But there's a reason for this very strong language. See, first century people were far more aware than we are of the ugliness of warfare. For us, war, unless you've actually been in the military, war is filtered through video games and news reports. It's kind of sanitized. But ancient people knew the, uh, the reality of it being always under the threat of possible invasion. They knew that no enemy was ever defeated without extreme violence. The bloody picture of this last battle um, is deliberate, And, and, and as we've said many times elsewhere in Revelation, symbolic. It's not presenting a real battle waged on real ground, but the end of spiritual powers. But this, uh, the way it's described, this battle, is meant to tell us two things. First, uh, that even the appearance of Jesus himself would not be enough to make people change their ways. The nature of sin is that it resists God until the bitter end. Even at the last, people will arrogantly and willfully continue to reject God's offer of grace. Even with bowed heads the human heart will still raise a fist. The second thing is that the victory of Jesus will be total. The carrion birds circling, descending for their meal, shows that the final outcome of the battle is not in doubt. The corrupt powers of evil will never rise again. The two battle scenes uh, focus particularly on the devil and his minions, uh, and perhaps also um, the most corrupt of human rulers. But 20 verse 11 then brings in a third scene. And this scene is not a final battle, but a final judgment. All people who have ever lived come before the throne of God. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The first book seemed to be uh, the annals of history that are opened. Uh, the record of all that has ever happened, both seen uh, events and actions and unseen motivations and thoughts. Under the penetrating gaze of Jesus, it becomes abundantly clear who rejected God's rule and sided with beastly powers. This isn't a, a weighing of numbers, of good deeds versus bad deeds, like you might have seen in The Good Place or just in popular imagination. No, this is a revealing of the human heart in its most basic form. The sinfulness that by nature resides in everyone is shown to be this treasonous attitude which rejects God and rubbishes what God has made. And horrifyingly, we find that the eternal end for those who are found guilty of this is the same lake of fire. These three scenes talk in no uncertain terms about the reality of hell. And as we've seen many times, the images are symbolic, not literal. Pop culture imagines hell in terms of fire and brimstone and demons coming up with imaginative torture methods. But actually, Revelation depicts hell as hellish for demons as well as humans. This is a place of punishment for everyone, both spiritual and mortal. The Bible um, does use fire image to describe hell, but just as a way of painting a vivid picture of just how terrible a place it is. So if it's not an actual lake of fire, then what is it? Uh, well, I've, I've got to say that Christians disagree on this, actually. And so many have tried to uh, see past the images to understand what's going on here. So this is just my attempt. But I think there's a hint Back at chapter 14, verse 11. Um, a few chapters now back, the, the same image is, is kind of brought before us of hell. And, the sm- and it says, that, And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Hell is at least a place where there is no Rest or maybe better, a place of eternal restlessness. C.S. Lewis um, described hell in his short story, The Great Divorce. You might have read it. And he imagined it as this endless expanse containing millions and millions of houses and billions of people. And all the residents of this place are constantly moving farther and farther away from each other because they can't stand each other. (laughs) They are nasty, shallow, sunken people, really just shades and echoes of humanity. I think this is helpful because the Bible tells us that sin has—it uh, works in different dimensions. right? It has an upward, inward, and outward dimensions. Upwards in that it's a rebellion against our creator God. Inwards in that it twists us in on ourselves. It makes us self-centered, obsessed with our own needs. And outwards in that self-centeredness leads us to put our own good above others and so rubbishing others in God's creation for our own gain. So it makes sense then that the punishment for sin and its wages would also have upward, inwards and outwards implications. It's an eternal punishment for crimes against an infinite God and it's to be completely cut off from His life, love and goodness eternally forever. But it's also what happens when God simply hands us over to our own devices. Hell is, in a way, self-inflicted. It's a place where human sin is allowed to go completely unchecked and unlimited. Citizens are left to be overpowered by their every vice, shriveling away from their humanity. They're kept company only by the very worst versions of themselves, cut off not from just from relationship with God, vertically, but relationship with others, horizontally. In fact, it's a place where there is no relationship, full stop. In a place where no human longing can ever be fulfilled, there simply cannot be any rest. Can you imagine a more hellish existence? Now, many people have questioned the justice of all this. Who is God to condemn me to hell simply for not worshipping him? Sure, everyone's done bad things, but if God is loving, well, can't he just let it go? Well, for one thing, well, that itself would be unjust. What kind of judge lets people off for no reason? We would quickly call that judge in our own courts um, uh, you know, criminal themselves that we would say we would demand that they lose their position and and maybe come under the the um, the law's own justice and judgment. People who who say this sort of thing tend to underestimate or generally misunderstand sin. That sin sin is actually not a few naughty mistakes here and there. Sin is the basic impulse of humans to reject God, and in that case, it's it's not so much a deed and much more like a virus. <laughs> Wherever it exists, it spreads infinitely faster and more deadly than COVID-19 or anything else that we've ever experienced. And so if that's the case, if that's what sin is, then if God was to remake the world into the the paradise he always wanted it to be, there cannot be a trace of sin anywhere. We're all too aware of the necessity of quarantine to control COVID-19. Well, hell, in a way, is an eternal quarantine for sin and evil, a place where it can be put so that its deadly touch can no longer ravage God's good creation. And those who insist on carrying and spreading sin must be quarantined there as well. Hell is a product of God's justice because sin must be punished. It's a crime. But actually, it's also a product of God's goodness, because of his unswerving commitment to renewing our sin-ridden world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should glory or gloat over hell. Even God himself doesn't do that. In Ezekiel, he says that he he takes no pleasure from it. But because of his justice, he will also not be deterred from it. The final victory of Jesus over sin over Satan, over evil and death, is coming. When? Well, it will come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day nor the hour. And the very nature of that mystery has inspired Christians to act uh, in two very different ways in light of the Second Coming. Some have become obsessed by it, trying to work out the very details of the when and the where and the how getting caught up in all sorts of outlandish theories. And others, and I think this is actually much more common, particularly in our circles, is to simply just not think about it very much. Go on with your life without the coming of Christ really being much on your mind at all. The culture around us so emphasizes the worries and concerns of the present that it tends to keep us numb to realities that, for all we know, might be still a very long way off. But imagine... Um, a day when we can play team sports again. <laughs> and imagine you're playing uh, a, a team sport, I don't know, take your pick, soccer, AFL. And, and you know in, in this game that, the, that the, the, the final siren or whistle is, is going to be blown. You, you don't know exactly when because you don't have a clock, but you know it's coming, you know it's coming. So how does that ma- how should that make you play? Well, surely it makes you play with all the more vigor, it makes you take the game all the more seriously because you don't know when, it, when the, 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 the siren will sound. You, you've got to make the most of every second because they, they all count. Well, the second coming of Christ to judge the world is meant to inspire His church, His people, to take every moment seriously. Remember the call of Jesus right at the beginning of Revelation. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give give you life as your victor's crown. The victorious one calls us to share in his victory by being faithful to him as he is faithful to us. What does it mean to be faithful so that we can be victorious of him? Well, it means at least four things in light of the, the final judgment, the final victory of Jesus. Number one, it it means uh, to help us to find comfort in Christ's promise to judge what is evil and restore what is good. It's about comfort. So none of us are immune to the brokenness of life. where We are just as confused and distressed by the effects of sin and evil on our world as anyone. And there's two ways that we could deal with that discomfort. We could disconnect from the reality of evil and just pursue pleasure and just be busy just not worry about trying to think about it. Or we could um, not ignore it, but become so worried that we become despondent by the enormity of the problem and feel paralyzed and depressed about it. The first is problematic because it fails for us to take seriously evil in the way that God does. The second is problematic uh, because it doesn't take seriously God's promise to restore the world and puts the, 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 all the responsibility on us. Uh, I'll talk about it in a second, but why we do have some responsibility. But knowing that Christ is coming to judge the world frees us from both of these extremes, because we can stare evil in the face and still show compassion to victims and mercy to oppressors, take evil seriously, but at the same time be full of hope that one day, Uh, To quote Lord of the Rings, the shadow will depart and all that is sad will become untrue. So that's the first thing, it gives us comfort. We need to take comfort in this. Secondly, uh, faithfulness means taking seriously Jesus' challenge to defy the dragon and the beasts. As I said, the fact that Jesus will come and restore everything doesn't remove us from responsibility uh, to act justly. The call over and over again in Revelation is to recognize the work of the dragon and the beastly powers that re- reject God's rule and spread selfishness and refuse to be influenced by them in any way that could draw us away from the command to love God above ourselves and love our neighbor as ourselves. Revelation depicts the church several times as an army. Its mission is not to conquer by violence or in word or deed, but by imitating Jesus the Lamb, by sacrificially loving mercy and doing justly and walking humbly with God. Not just uh, refusing to to do sin ourselves, but actually to uphold those who are victims of sin and evil, to love the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts, the downtrodden. Because in this way, we actually push back the influence of the beast as we extend the flourishing of God's kingdom and What that means is that we give people a glimpse of heaven on earth that shows people just how hellish life without God really is. And actually by doing that, we participate in a third um, way that we can be faithful. And that's taking seriously God's call to witness through suffering. If you pledge to love God above all, and others as yourself, then you will invite discomfort. And that discomfort can come from a culture that increasingly rejects God or others who openly oppose our faith and, or it can simply be that a life of sacrifice is, isn't very comfortable and it can re- really involve suffering. Yet what this does is witness to the world uh, the truth of the gospel. That, In the words of one modern martyr, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This kind of life sends a message to the world that there is someone who is worthy of every sacrifice, even the sacrifice of death. He's worthy because he himself did not hesitate to suffer and die for us. It invites invites people to come and investigate this Jesus for whom we give up everything for. Judgment day has not yet come, and that means that God is still being patient with this world. And that means that every moment is a gift a gift for us to extend God's uh, offer of grace to people to come and trust in Jesus. Because God will not stay his hand of judgment forever, that means that this gives us all the more impulse, all the more uh, motivation. To be faithful witnesses of the faithful witness, Jesus. If we have any love for the people of this world, then we have to do all that we can to testify to the one who offers salvation through the final judgment. So there's a comfort, there's a, a challenge to resist the beasts and the dragon, and there's a call to be witnesses. To Jesus, uh, But none of these are actually possible without the fourth way of being faithful. The faithfulness actually means being confident in our status in Christ. This one is at the bottom. Of, this, this is the most foundational uh, way of being faithful, one that leads to everything else. Notice in chapter 19 that as Jesus rides forth in judgment, he is seen wearing a robe dipped in blood. And commentators have thought this is strange because the fighting hasn't started yet, and yet his his, his clothes are already bloody. What's going on? Of course, we know because Jesus in Revelation has already been pictured as the lamb who was slain. His robes are stained with his own blood. The judge of the world is one and the same as the saviour of the world. The one who comes again is the one whose own body hung dead and bleeding from the cross, carrion birds no doubt circling overhead, cut off from God and cut off from humanity. The unrestrained wrath of God against sin and evil was poured out on his Son. He went through hell to snatch those who trust in him from hell's jaws." Knows that the armies of heaven following the rider on the white horse are clothed in white linen. And we know from elsewhere in Revelation that these are the white-clothed people of God, His church. Those who are clothed in white because their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have nothing to fear in judgment because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because we know that this is the Jesus who comes again, we know that we can be confident on that last day because we have spiritually come to life with Christ if we trusted in Him. That one day uh, we will bodily come to life with Christ. That death has no power over us. Judgment will pass over us. And when we forget this or when we downplay it or minimalize it, then we lack the the confidence to actually be faithful in all the other ways. Without the confidence that Jesus has won the battle against sin in us, then we won't feel the comfort of his promise to win the battle against evil outside of us in the world. And without confidence that Jesus' death and resurrection has dealt a death blow to the power of Satan and his beast, and we'll be far too afraid to defy them at the cost of our own lives, or at least our own livelihoods. And without confidence that God is gracious enough to save people who are too sinful to save themselves, then we won't ever care enough about the eternal destiny of our neighbors and our friends to be witnesses of Christ to them. No, it's our confidence in the one we follow, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, whose robes are dipped in blood, And in his blood that was shed for us, it's our confidence in this that gives us the spiritual power to be faithful and true to the one who is faithful and true, who has been faithful and true to us. And family, it's what will motivate us to keep our eyes on the horizon, waiting for his coming again, and in the meantime to take every moment seriously as a precious gift of God's grace so that we can live lives that are worthy of the gospel that's been given to us. The good news that we will stand tall with faces uplifted and with mouths full of praise the day we stand before the white throne of God and are pronounced innocent because Christ is innocent and because we are in Him. He is in us. I'm going to give you some time now to reflect on this and there's a question up on the screen which is in light of uh, the second coming of Jesus what does it mean for us to live faithful lives? What does it mean for us to pursue victory? Which of these uh, challenges, the, the comfort, the call, the challenge, or the confidence does, do you need to uh, uh, take hold of and grasp and believe and trust today? As we do that, um, I'm going to pray in a second, and of course, you can also text a few questions to me, and I'll answer a few uh, in a couple of minutes as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Uh, thank you for this this image from Revelation. Um, you've designed it deliberately to to uh, for us t- for the words to jump out of the page because of their intensity, uh, because um, of their horror in some ways. Uh, but we do that, Father, we know because you want us to see all the more clearly your grace and your love for us and what this means for our lives. So, Spirit, talk to us. Um, help us to to love Jesus more because of this and, therefore, to love others more because of this. Amen. I'll give you a few moments to to reflect and think of questions. Thank you. A couple of great questions. <coughs> Uh, start with this one. Uh, the Bible makes clear that our salvation comes only through faith in Jesus and what He has done for us. However, verses like Revelation nineteen eight and or twenty twelve to thirteen seem to say we will be judged on uh, individual acts. How should we understand and reconcile these verses? It's uh, a good question, a tricky one, I think, um, because there seems to be two things held in tension. The uh, well, one is that. Uh, human action matters, that what we do matters, how we live matters um, to God and for eternity. Uh, that, And that on the, the final judgment, um, all deeds and all thoughts will come before the throne, um, both for Christians um, and for those who um, reject Jesus and reject God. So that seems to be clear that all that will, will come up. The difference being seems to be uh, that those who are washed in Christ's blood, God will treat them like he treats Jesus. The, the forgiveness of sin, sins means that because Christ will stand as our representative, even though all our dirt and muck and yuck will come out before God, uh, God, when he, when he sees those things, will look at Jesus' perfect life and perfect record and, and, and say that because we have been spiritually united with Christ, then he has already died for and taken those guilty actions. He's already paid the price. The judgment has been done, actually, on those, on those deeds, those actions. Justice has been done. And that means that on that day we can stand innocent because the, the judgment that, that, of, that is meant for that final day has already been completed and completely completed on, that, on the day of the cross and the day of Golgotha. So it's hard. I think that means two things for us. One, we can stand confident knowing that as we uh, approach judgment day, then we will be able to stand firm um, and be, innocent, be declared innocent because Christ has been declared innocent. But it also should make us sober, that nonetheless those deeds will come out. And so we would not want to waste this precious gift only to have um, a life that's been maybe, um, maybe still saved but not been particularly faithful to come out in that last day because every deed matters in, God's, um, in the way God sees the world. Uh, that's a bit of an attempt. We're, we're delving into pretty deep and, and tricky territory with that one. But I think that that's at least what we can be confident of, that if you trust in Christ, you stand firm on the last day, you'll be innocent. But also, we should be careful about how we live, as the Bible says over and over again. Great question. Uh, And the second one is like it. If people feel unsure about the coming judgment, if they don't know that they are wearing the white robes, what can they do? and this is a, a great question, a really common one. It seems to me like that is generally the case. And I think we all I feel, that, feel that slight moments of doubt and concern sometimes too. I think it tends to be heightened when um, two things are happening. One is people are very aware of their fallenness, how they fall short of God's glory and aware of their, their sins in a way that um, which actually is not a bad thing because God uh, really wants us to be aware of just how far we fall short. Uh, secondly, it, it means that we can be, uh, have a, either a wrong or a, a, a too small a view of God's grace, that, um, that God's, the, the sacrifice of Jesus might not be enough to cover all our sins, or that it might take a, more, of a, more of an effort on our part, have a more faith, more gumption, more... Uh, live better, you know, to kind of make it worthy. You kind of go, yeah, God gets, I know God meets me here, but maybe I have to come to here. Uh, When the Bible actually says that, um, and it's really clear from Revelation um, 19 and 20, that actually sin, by its very nature, um, resists God all the way to the end. That means that anything that God does to save us has to be completely His intervention and nothing of our own which means that as like um, it says in, in Romans 10 that all, that all who call upon the Lord are saved. I mean, that's all it takes. Because grace is a gift, all it takes is to receive it. And Jesus says, well, you can have a, a, a faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains in the sense of saying that um, miraculous things, including the salvation of a life, um, takes nothing more than the tiniest amount of faith. And even that is a gift of God. So I think that um, it means two things. One, Uh, that if you trust in Jesus, then you can be sure. Um, But not to just allow that to to stop you from growing in uh, confidence and growing in maturity and growing in goodness, because that is just the start of the Christian life. The confidence, as I tried to say this morning, leads us into adopting um, the, the, the comfort of God, the challenge to resist the beasts, Um, and the call to live as missional people, as witnesses to Jesus. Uh, So if you're worried, um, there's the other question to ask. uh, Do I believe in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then you will stand firm on the the last day. I hope that's helpful. I'll leave it there um, and hand over to Sarah to lead us in a way in, in singing to continue to respond to God's grace and goodness. Thanks, Sarah.